1: Kyle Kondik, welcome Managing Editor, Larry Sabato's crystal ball. So you know everything in Virginia, don't you? I don't know if I
0: know everything, but
1: I try to keep up with it. Well, through the University of Virginia Center for Politics, you and Sabato have to stay on top of this stuff. And so you guys are like the mastermind. So I have one fundamental question for you. What is happening in Virginia?
0: I mean, look, I think it's a it's a close uh, competitive gubernatorial race, which uh, I, I think you could sort of expect, at least from history, in that, um, you know, the Virginia governor's race is one of the first big state level races anywhere uh, after a presidential election year. You know, there, there aren't that many other big races in, in you know the odd numbered year after presidential uh, and the Virginia governor's race uh, pretty often ends up breaking in favor of the party that does not hold the White House. If you go back to the 1970s, only one time has a presidential party candidate won the governor's race. Um, that actually was Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee this time, and McAuliffe won in 2013. Um, it's also always an open seat race because Virginia is the only state where uh, a governor cannot run for uh, you know run for re-election. Now you can come back and run again, which is what McAuliffe is doing, uh, is doing now. Um, but let's just sort of historical factor uh, you know, helps Glenn Young and the Republican candidate. Also the fact that, you know, look, I mean, Joe Biden and the Democrats aren't as Strong as they were maybe a few months ago, and I think that has a bearing on the race too. That uh, you know, Republican enthusiasm, I think, is is up. That that shows up in polls, but also another thing that shows up in polls is that. Virginia's become uh, definitely a, a, a more democratic state, you know, than the nation is as a whole, certainly, um, and that's a factor that could end up helping uh, McAuliffe in the end.
1: You got some funky rules in that state.
0: <laughs> that's what. That's uh, yeah, what I absolutely, <laughs> abs- absolutely. It's one of the. I think there are maybe like four or five states that have, uh, you know, governorships in odd-numbered years. So New Jersey's also this year. You've got Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi in uh, coming up two years from now. But but, but um, you. Uh, but you it, guys... it ensures that Virginia is always sort of in the political spotlight because either you have a federal election every even numbered year, or you have a, uh, you know, statewide races in the state house of delegates this year, two years from now, it's going to be the state Senate. So there's always something going on politically in Virginia.
1: Yeah. Um, hmm. You guys have put handcuffs on term limits. If you can only hold office (laughs) for four years, then move on. But you can can come back with what McAuliffe is trying to do. And it's
0: it's only happened one time before, uh, and that was Mills Godwin, who was a was was basically the last uh, kind of uh, conservative uh, Democrat elected in 1965. And then he came back in 1973 as the Republican nominee, as the state sort of realigned, you know, Virginia, like so many other southern states, had this sort of conservative Democratic tradition and then kind of evolved into a. um, um, traditional two-party state virginia was pretty republican state for a long time uh but now it's sort of transitioned to being more of a democratic state
1: yeah, so that's the only time it's happened huh
0: i believe so at least at least certainly in wow. modern history and so okay. McAuliffe's trying to be the second you know repeat governor again even though he's not technically the incumbent in this election he might as well be given that he was just the governor um from mm-hmm. 2014 to 2018
1: yeah when you um in a broad sense when you scan the state how do you break it down or analyze it.
0: Uh, you know, I think you can you can sort of look at it politically now as as you know. There's this area. I guess you could sort of broadly group the three big urban areas together is what some people call the urban crescent. So you've got uh, Northern Virginia, which is a you know a big source of votes, a particularly big source of Democratic votes. You've got the Greater Richmond area, which um, there's been some Democratic trend in that area too. And then you've got Hampton Roads, which is, uh, you know, Virginia Beach and and Norfolk and some of those some of those places there. And that's traditionally a swing area. Um, Virginia Beach is usually kind of a Republican leaning swing city. Uh, It's a place that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in, in 2020. So you've got those three areas and together they cast you know, two thirds or more of the statewide vote, and then you've got kind of the rest of the state, which is definitely more Republican, um, kind of overwhelmingly Republican, you know, outside of uh, some some areas. I mean, Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is, is a very Democratic place. There are other kind of college towns, city of Roanoke, et cetera. But, you know, Democrats used to compete uh, in Western Virginia. And in fact, when Mark Warner first won the governorship way back in 2001, he um he had some famous ads with NASCAR and, and was sort of trying to appeal to kind of culturally conservative Democratic voters in that part of the state. And Warner actually, you know, historically had done pretty well uh, in Western Virginia. But um, just like every other Democrat, his re- support has receded in that part of the state. But it's grown in, um, you know, Northern Virginia and some of the bigger, you know, suburban exurban areas. Um, and so for, for Democrats in Virginia, it's, it's basically a good trade off because the Republican growth in Western Virginia is... Um, um, more than trumped by the democratic growth in the, in the places that basically just have more people.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember the night when Obama won in 2008, and a Democrat had not won in Virginia, I think since 1964, right. uh, if memory serves. That, that was that was really, that, that was a tremor that time in that election, which I think portended for a good night for Obama early on. My simple analysis is this, you know, with, with the deep blue growth of Northern Virginia across the river from Washington, D.C., and the deep red growth in the rest of the state, it's how many votes... Votes does McAuliffe run up in Northern Virginia versus how many votes does Yunkin get in Southern and Southwestern Virginia?
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a totally reasonable way of looking at it. And and look, I mean, you know, there are um, you know, we used to think of, I think, if if you were like from the perspective of 2008, you know, that breakthrough election for Democrats as you mentioned, you know, you would have looked at some of the bigger counties in northern Virginia as being like swing counties like Loudoun County, for instance, Prince William, which are kind of like suburban, exurban D.C. counties uh, and RICO is another one in the Richmond area. And, you know, over the past dozen years or so, those counties have sort of transitioned into being more like Democratic counties, you know, Democrats in in good years will win, you know, by by twenty plus points in those places. You know, can Youngkin can cut that into the teens? You know, can he can even cut it to single digits? You know, that's maybe what what a, a, a victory would look like because you got to. For Yunkin, he's got to you know tamp down the Democratic support to to some level uh, in northern Virginia, and then kind of run up the score in much of much of the rest of the state. You know, I mentioned Virginia Beach earlier. Yunkin spent uh, a little bit of his youth. I think he went to high school in uh, Virginia Beach. Um, you know, that's a place that that a Republican has to win, and it's one of the larger sources of votes of any individual mm-hmm. you know city or county in the state. Um, so that's really a place that I'll definitely be watching on election. Yeah, day.
1: you mentioned in That's like my favorite county in virginia because it 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 doesn't look like that when you pronounce it right that's in the uh richmond area
0: um yeah it kind of wraps it kind of wraps around uh the city of richmond again it's another you know uh just like a lot of other places across the country you know it's a a suburban exurban county that uh um you know used to be really republican and and has has since become more democratic Yeah, yeah who was in rico by the way do you know uh, I don't, you, got, you got me on that <laughs> like, one. I do not know. It begins with
1: an H, by the way, not an E. Uh, you mentioned the, Bi- right. the Biden headwinds. Tell me about that. There might be a visit, McAuliffe said this week on MSNBC, that it was coming, would not give a date. That's understandable. Uh, but is, is Biden a drag that could be more prominent in Northern Virginia than elsewhere in the state, given exposure to Washington, D.C., which ultimately could help Youngkin? How do you analyze that factor?
0: yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Biden's you know approval rating is uh, is net negative across the country. Um, you know, it's it's probably either a little bit negative or maybe you know about break even in Virginia. But Fox News put put out their own poll, you know, within the last uh, within the last day that had um, uh, that had B- Biden's approval slightly positive in Virginia, which seems kind of reasonable to me. But you know, given that Virginia is more democratic than the nation now, but um, you know, you do wonder if there is a you know, there's always kind of an enthusiasm problem for the presidential party in these off year elections, be it a Virginia gubernatorial race or uh, potentially for the midterm next year. And if you sort of pair that with maybe dissatisfaction with uh, how things are going in Washington, you know, there's been just a number of kind of negative developments for Biden, the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, which was one of the kind of the catalyzing event that I think turned his n- approval negative. But, you know, COVID hasn't gone away. You've got, you know, inflation and the supply chain problems, which maybe nibble on the margins of his, you uh, approval rating. And, um, you know, Democrats are again, they're challenged in in kind of drumming up enthusiasm. And, and if, you know, Biden doesn't look that great. And also, you know, you've got the Democrats trying to figure out this big social spending package and whether they can pass this bipartisan infrastructure bill. You know, Washington controlled by Democrats maybe looks a little ineffective right now. And again, I do wonder if that causes some sort of problem for uh, for Democrats. So, you know, look, McAuliffe, I'm sure felt a lot better about his standing in the race, you know, when Biden's approval nationally was like 55% as opposed to now when it's on average, it really close to 45%. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. You know, my co-anchor Dana Perino and I, uh, we, we like the data. We like the nitty gritty of races like this. And we like to dive deep into the numbers. I, I said, I'm going to talk to Kyle on Friday. And I, I said, you got a question for him? And she said, ask him what he pays attention to that no one else does you got a good
0: answer um well you know i i i i have been looking at the early vote stuff which i think most people probably don't look at and also you know you can you can also look at it and decide that it probably doesn't tell you all that much (laughs) and that's sort of where i'm at with the early vote stuff so you know a lot of states like uh, like florida for instance you know florida has a long tradition of people voting by mail or voting early in person. And so, you you know, we know in Florida that, you know, the lion's share of the electorate votes before um, before Election Day. And that's been true for years there. Now, you know, maybe that changes a little bit party perceptions of whether you should vote in advance or not. You know, that's that's sort of a thing. But, um, but so we know that about Florida. Virginia, on the other hand, is a state where prior to 2020, um, there was hardly any earlier mail-in voting at all. Less, you know, usually less than uh, less than ten percent of the whole uh, the whole electorate voted that way. And you know, you needed an excuse to vote early or to vote vote absentee by mail, etc. Et so the legislature legislature changed those rules in twenty twenty. You know, right before the pandemic, which actually ended up being kind of a prescient in that you know a lot of people wanted to take advantage of early and mail-in voting because of where the pandemic was last year. And so about sixty percent of all the votes were cast early. Um, either in person or by mail. This time, if you even you know even if you sort of take into account that a gubernatorial election is going to have less turnout than a presidential year election, um, the pace of the early vote, even if you take that into account, is slower this time. It's picking up a little bit, um, but if you're concerned about the Democratic position, um, that might be something to watch because. We know, again, from across the country that, you know, Republicans are likely to dominate on Election Day. Now, it may also be, though, that people in Virginia just aren't really used to voting early and they, they mm-hmm. only did it in 2020 and they're going to come back to voting um, on Election Day this year. But that's something to sort of monitor. But, you know, it's something I've like been looking at, but I don't know if we could draw that many conclusions from it, because, again, Virginia is not a state with, with a long track record of a lot of people well, voting interesting. Yeah. prior to 2020.
1: Uh, early voting started back on the 18th of September. I think it ends on the 24th of October, so that's what, five or six weeks. But you're you're saying that you can't read much into the early voting.
0: Yeah, I, I, I really I really can't, because, again, um, you know, it's not like we, you know, in, in 2017, for instance, I think only seven percent of the vote was cast earlier in person. You know, in the presidential election in Virginia, it was 60. That's a huge difference. Yeah. You know, what is the sort of um, what does it settle at, you know, over over the next several years? Like, how are Virginians voting? You know, do do, um, do, do a lot of them go back to voting in, in person on Election Day or do people, um, you know, take more advantage of the early voting options? We have a track record like that in other states. States to compare it to, we don't in Virginia. So it's not, I just don't know what to make of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, we've had Youngkin on the air a couple of times. McAuliffe has had an open invitation. He has not yet taken us up on that. Hope that changes. But I was watching an interview with him on Thursday. Uh, MSNBC, Andrea Mitchell, I think you may have seen that as well, uh, Kyle. But he was... Um, he went after Yunkin about these election conspiracy theories that Yunkin was talking about the other night. I did not follow that or catch that particular appearance by Yunkin, but that's what McAuliffe brought up. He says he's a Trump wannabe. Um, so here is a question for you. Do we know if Democrats run well when they run against Donald Trump, even though Trump is not on the ballot?
0: We don't. I don't think we do know that, although I guess you could say that in California, a much more democratic state than Virginia is, you know, Gavin Newsom was facing a recall. He ended up running ahead of his ahead of his, his the polls in that race. One one it looks like by about a little under twenty five points, uh, and he was able to kind of nationalize that race against his uh you know the the guy who would have replaced him if governor as his governor if he would have been recalled, Larry Elder, who is a uh, pretty conservative uh, you know person with the talk radio host, um, and I think Newsom was able to sort of basically remind people of Trump through Elder. I think McAuliffe's trying to do the same thing with Yunkin, but Yunkin, I think isn't as easily tied to Trump in part because, you know, he's not a boisterous radio talk show person. Um, you know, I think Yunkin is plenty conservative, just like I think McAuliffe is plenty liberal, but he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily convey this sort of Trumpian vibes. I think Yunkin is more like a, he has kind of like more of like a Romney, Paul Ryan kind of, uh, kind of, you know, hmm. uh, uh, attitude, I guess, or the, the sort of image. Uh, and so, you know, Ultimately, any opportunity that McAuliffe gets to tie Yunkin to Trump, he's going to take. And there was a, uh, a rally uh, that Yunkin was not at in Virginia a couple a couple days ago that uh, Steve Bannon, uh, you know, the person who's, you know, has been close to the president, former President Trump. Worked, worked in the White uh, House so the, in the
1: early days. Yes. Continue.
0: Yeah. So McAuliffe, uh, you know, McAuliffe has tried to make hay of that. And, uh, you know, I think McAuliffe is the one essentially trying to nationalize this race. He wants to make it about national issues. Um, Wants to remind people about, you know, that Trump has endorsed Youngkin, et cetera. Whereas Youngkin uh, and and, and McAuliffe is bringing in a lot of big figures. You you mentioned that Biden is probably going to come campaign for McAuliffe. Former President Obama is coming. Jill Biden is coming. Stacey Abrams from the former uh, gubernatorial nominee from Georgia, who's a big national uh, presence on the Democratic side. She's she's going to campaign for McAuliffe. That's a lot. Whereas Youngkin really. Yeah, Youngkin is really not bringing in you know, big kind of, I'd say, I guess, celebrity or prominent Republicans, um, he is. Uh, and, and I think that that shows that he wants to sort of be his own person. He doesn't want to nationalize the race because I think he realizes that he needs some crossover support. And if he's you know, if he's out campaigning with Donald Trump or um, or other kind of big name Republicans, that kind of plays right into McCall's strategy of, mm. of nationalization.
1: Kyle Condit, great stuff. Stand by more in a moment here on Hammer Time.
2: That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
1: Back with Kyle Kondik, managing editor, Larry Sabato's crystal ball from the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Just a, a few more questions as we try and run down what the state of play is in Virginia. On the issues here at Fox, we've covered the education issue in depth. And I don't know how you figure that into the big vote. Or is that something we wait to determine based on the results after they come in?
0: I'd say it's more the latter, which I guess is kind of a cop out answer. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, and I just go, <laughs> well, back well to you the, are the, the guest. So the, 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 the Fox News poll that, that you all put out, which is a poll that I, I really respect, a good track record over the years, um, but that poll, I think, indicated that, you know, I think that Califf made this comment at the, the second debate in which he said, you know, I, I don't uh, I don't think teachers should be or I'm sorry, I don't think parents should be telling teachers what to teach. Essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But um, and the Youngkin campaign has really run with that and their advertising and, and they're, they've been using that as as something I think that they think they could hurt McAuliffe with. And what I think what that poll indicated as I read it is that that comment was, you know, it's not something that a majority of Virginians agree with and that on education education is an issue that Youngkin and McAuliffe are, are pretty close to in, in terms of who voters would trust on that issue. You know, typically Democrats have more of an edge. And yet among parents, McAuliffe was leading by 10. And I don't know if you could say that that comment has necessarily like moved the race in favor of Youngkin. So it's not obvious to me that education as an issue is really popping in this race. Now, if you see um, some of the suburban exurban places like Loudoun County has been sort of a flashpoint for um, um, school board battles and education stuff that, that this this calendar year. You know, if you see Yunkin run, you know, way ahead of what say Donald Trump did in Loudon, um, that might be an indication that the education issue actually sure. actually worked yeah. for him there. Um, but it's not it's not obvious to me from the polling yet that it's it's been a big factor in the race.
1: Oh, very interesting answer there. Um, we'll we'll put that on the back burner and see how it comes out. I was looking at history for the governor's races. Uh, I think generally the association that people Make the Virginia politics today is that it's a it's a blue state. Now we had a Democratic analyst on this week, Mo Alethi, I'm sure you're familiar with him from Georgetown. Sure, he, he disagreed with that. He kicked it to the curb. He said Virginia's purple, and um, maybe he's right. But if you look at the history of the past dozen years. The governor races have been closer than one would expect. In 2009, the Republicans won. GOP won that. In 2013, pretty close race, but you had a third-party candidate that likely took votes away from the Republican. Democrats win. But in 2017, Democrats rolled. Northam, Ralph Northam, blew out his Republican opponents. Do we think that is still the state of play for Virginia politics, or do we think it is still more of a purple middle-of-the-road state? Your view on that is what?
0: I think... I think Trump was just not a very good fit for Virginia. Uh, and he kind of hypercharged the Democrats uh, in, you know, in 16, 17, 18, 19 and 20, um, because, you know, Virginia, we there's some sort of uh, state or federal level election going on basically every year. Uh, but Trump, you know, he's not is not in the White House anymore. He's not on the ballot, obviously. And I do think that there might be sort of that that tide will, will probably recede to some level. Now, the good thing for McAuliffe is that, you know, Ralph North. Northam won in 2017 by nine Biden won by 10 in 2020, you know, McAuliffe can can afford some reversion uh, to, you know, from from Democrats and still still win this race. It's just a question of of how much is there. You know, I I don't think that Virginia is like a is like a bellwether state for the country anymore, like is is a purely purple state. Um, I think it's you know, I think it's it's trending more toward being a blue state. But I, I think it is still competitive enough that, you know, Glenn Youngkin can win this race if enough things break for him.
1: Mm-hmm. You're great, Kyle. Thank you so much for your time. I just have one last question for you. I mentioned the McAuliffe interview this week, and he, he basically had, without being prompted, a message for Washington, D.C. I wrote down the quote. He said they need to get a deal done. Uh, that's a clear reference to infrastructure or build back better or or both, suggesting that he is well aware that a Democratic majority stuck in the mud of D.C. politics has not been good for him or will not be good for him. How do you view that?
0: Look, I think McAuliffe wants something positive he can point to, you know, from across the Potomac in the final days of this race, you know, because he you know, he wants to, you know, say that, uh, uh, you know, the Democrats are getting getting things done. um, And, you know, maybe uh, if Democrats are able to pass something before the election, that gives a little bit of shot in the arm to Biden, which which, you know, if you you believe that the president's approval is is important essentially everywhere, which I I basically do, you know, if Biden's approval goes up a little bit, that's sort of the, the rising tide lifts all boats. and. You know, uh, uh, McAuliffe feels the most urgency here because so many other Democrats they're not you know they're not on the ballot until for uh, until a year from now, um, so they can think oh well, you know we can we can wait and get this thing done in November or December or whatnot. But you know, here's the thing: if McAuliffe loses, they're going to be um, they're probably going to be some uh, particularly the moderates and swing districts in Washington who um, are going to be worried about you know their own fate next year, and maybe that has some sort of impact on Democrats' ability to, to get what. What they want yeah. through uh, through Congress, so uh, so you know certainly you know again McAuliffe wants wants to be able to point to something positive, and um, there hasn't been a lot of that from Washington over the last couple of months, which um, might be contributing, probably is contributing to why this is a uh, seems like a very close competitive race.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a pe- by the way, we're talking on Friday afternoon, October fifteenth, so whenever our listeners get to this, uh, things could change because uh, I'm holding in my hands an article from the Washington Post two days ago. Karen Tomalty wrote it, uh, and the headline is a danger sign for Democrats in Virginia and beyond. The first line is Democrats are sweating the Virginia governor's race, which is turning out to be tighter than expected. We will see in the end, Kyle, if that is the case. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. You bet. Great stuff, Kyle. We will speak again. Kyle Bill. managing editor Larry Sabato's crystal ball. We'll see if you have seen the future or not in that crystal ball. Thank you, Kyle. Have a great weekend. I'm Bill Hemmer.